I remember going to a C12 meeting. I was part of this Christian business owner group early on in our company's history when I was giving 10%. And I heard the story, I'm pretty sure it was Penny, who over his lifetime flipped it to where he gave 90% and kept 10%. Immediately, I knew that's what I wanted to do in my life at some point, that I wanted to get to that JCPenney model of giving away 90. And so we went from, I think, 10 to 20 to 30 to 33 in four straight years. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we just help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Today, I get to share a conversation with you that I had with a guy named J.P. Kruger. Uh, and I'm really excited to share this with you because JP is the founder and CEO of Five Stone Tax Advisors in Austin, Texas. And the way that I got to know JP was actually when a friend of mine started working for Five Stone a handful of years ago. And I'll never forget when this friend of mine in Austin, his name is John, started working there. One of the things that he would comment on was how much he valued the leadership of the organization, the culture of the organization, the fact that the organization valued people's family life and valued work life balance in the life of their employees and made sure that they weren't just doing work in a way that was efficient, but also effective. And so often over the years, as I would talk to my friend John about his work, he would just constantly go on and on about the way the organization was structured and how healthy the organization was. And that was so inspiring. And it was recently that I actually got to meet JP and his team because they actually signed up to doing our ownership mentality team training. And so we spent a full day walking through what it means to have an ownership mentality and what it looks like to own your motive, own your role, own your growth, own the solution, and then own your influence as a leader. And it was such a powerful day because the team was so engaged and they were so professional and they were just so fun to be around and they were so energizing to be with. And one of the things that I realized is, oh, we are not teaching ownership mentality at all. This is not something that's revolutionary. This is something that we're just refining. We're just tweaking. We're just doubling down and adding some intentionality to the things that this group is already doing. And it was in that context that I started to really, really deeply admire and respect JP's leadership. JP is a value-based leader, and you're going to hear a lot of that in this conversation. But before we get into how he created that culture and strategically how he thinks about the growth of his business, I wanted you to hear a little bit about why he started Five Stone. Thank you for having me today. I had the privilege of running a couple other companies before finding, uh, starting Five Stone. And what I wanted to do was have a business that checked a couple boxes. It helped people, uh, positive impact in the world. And then it was around something I was passionate about. And something that I'm passionate about is, is lowering people's taxes and not really liking taxation, excessive taxation, frankly, large government that is often inefficient. And so, and then I wanted something that was built to last, that could be around for a long time maybe a hundred years or so. Um, I had been involved in technology companies prior and I didn't want to wake up one day and have something that we worked at 10, 20, 30 years essentially become irrelevant because the world around us had shifted. And so trying to find what was going to check all those boxes ended up being a, a service company that was helping people with their tax situation. And so we get the opportunity to help people. It's something I'm passionate about, lowering people's taxes and then taxes have been around, you know, since Jesus and before Jesus, and they're not going away. So we're not going <laughs> to become irrelevant anytime soon. 
Very good. Um, okay, so when you started, I believe there wasn't any outside funding or anything like that. It was like you and you were chief everything, everything, correct? I mean, you literally did every job in the beginning. I'd love for you to tell a little bit of the story of those first three years, kind of, because I think there's so many entrepreneurs that, yes, they start in that stage, but they also stay in that stage. Mm. So give us a little bit of a picture of kind of what your actions were and what your priorities were in that first two to three years. Yeah, it was a unique experience. Like I said, I had ran other companies. I had never started my own. And so this was a unique experience. I did start as the sole employee with a $30,000 loan from my father who he got from a credit card. <laughs> so <laughs> no, we, we come from the other side of the tracks. We don't come from money. And so that was interesting. And yes, early on, I did the whole cycle. We call it the client life cycle from marketing, sales, onboarding, doing the actual work, the fulfillment. I mean, creating the invoice and sending it to them and answering the phone. And so it, it, I enjoyed it. Um, it allowed me to you know touch every aspect of the business, every process, um, It allowed me to sort of create the systems from scratch, which I enjoyed. I love business and all the science around it and all the different disciplines within it. And so we quickly started staffing. I think within a few months we had hired, had some staff. And so I look back on those years and I really cherished them. Frankly, it was, it felt easier in some respects. It it was hard Mm. in that there was uncertainty. You're trying to get your first couple clients. You're trying to sort of establish that your business plan is going to work. And so there's a little bit of that that's a challenge, but smaller, leaner, you know, being kind of in in all aspects of the business, frankly, on some level, it felt easier, hmm. you know, those first couple of years. And then uh, not, not to get ahead of us, but as we started to scale up and really grow, frankly, I think that's where most of our challenges. And as I look back on the roughly 14, 15 years that we've had the company, those middle years where I think we were really trying to scale up and really pressing into top line growth and, and staffing mm. up, those were our hardest years by far. Really? Okay. So when did you start to experience that tension or that chasm of like, okay, we're, we're now uh, starting to scale this thing. This thing is going beyond me. When did that start in the life cycle of the business, JP? Yeah, I would, I would link it most directly to when I started to staff the mid-level management and bring in other sort of C-suite executives, if you will. So, you know, felt like it was around 15 staff where I was basically everybody's boss and then came to the conclusion that there was really something here that could scale up. And so I started hiring, you know, some executive types and some senior leaders to really more run the company so that I could more build the company. And then the rapid staffing that came from that, that's where it didn't feel great. And, you know, the organization sort of took a real hit in, in healthy in, in the health of the organization and the culture and things like that. It's pretty remarkable to hear that those kind of early stages, like so many people think about those early stages up to that point as like, oh man, that was awful, right? And you, for you to say, oh, it was kind of fun. You know, it's like, I kind of enjoy that. What, what do you think your strengths were that made you good in that season and stage of business? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I truly love everything we do. I enjoy, I guess you might call it the mundane. I enjoy the process. I, I, I really like, we call it lean operations or Six Sigma to use the yeah. fancy term. I enjoy all that stuff. So it was fun for me to design the processes and design the forms and the templates. And, and I enjoy the work. I'm passionate about it. So maybe it was, an, it, it was simpler. It was easier. There were fewer people to manage. Um, and and I, maybe I, I think probably like most 
uh, business owners or leaders, uh, there is a certain level of control that I enjoy and, and like. And I certainly had a lot of that, right? It felt like I was very <laughs> much in control. Um, everything went the way I wanted it to. And so in that middle phase where we sort of staffed up and brought in a lot of leaders to help grow it, I frankly, I, I willingly gave up a lot of that control because that's, I think, what needs to happen. But I don't know if that felt good. I think I missed something about that. Mm. Did you view yourself in that early stage as laying a foundation for something that was going to be much bigger or were you just doing what you knew to be right? How did you view it? Yeah, I think it was the latter. I didn't have a grand vision. I'm not a big multi-year planner. Uh, I really try to trust God. I love that verse in the Bible where he says, you know, don't make these long plans of where you're going to go and what you're going to do. And I understand to some extent you have to have a plan. There's a healthy tension there. And so I've been a one-year planner for most of my career. It's when mm-hmm. I started getting into, uh, based on wise counsel from from senior leaders and advisory boards and things, getting into more two, three, five-year plans. Hey, what are you going to do in five years? Those thought processes and those strategic meetings for us, I'm not saying this is a best practice or, or shouldn't be done, but for us, that I think contributed to our middle years, which weren't all that great, uh, thinking too far down the road. And and just to kind of jump ahead a, a little bit, our kind of last five years, our third iteration, if you will, we're back to just a one-year plan and, and just God's going to, you know, we have a plan, but God's going to lead us through it. And and it's it's great. That's pretty remarkable. So just to make sure I'm understanding right, you're saying like, okay, the maybe some of maybe they were revenue goals or metrics that were associated with three, five years down the road was actually something that did it catalyze growth that wasn't necessarily sustainable. And that's why it kind of drug you into the middle years. Or what are you saying the relationship is between those two? Definitely uh, pretty aggressive growth goals that we were largely able to achieve. And so, you know, bigger isn't always better. And, And for us and the way I'm wired, I really value a healthy organization, a, co- a cohesive culture, a drama-free zone, um, you know, a, a well-oiled machine, you know, things going well, clients really being just getting an, an amazing experience. I value all of those things above top-line growth and profitability. And I'm not sure I knew that or was keenly aware of that at, at that sort of going into that second uh, trimester of our company, if you will. It sounded great, right? God had already wired me with the desire to be generous. And so I don't get to take credit for the generosity because that's just a gift that God gave me. And so it was easy for sort of an advisory committee or some some wise counselors to convince me that you guys need to grow. The market's there. You have the ability. Let's make this thing much bigger. You'll be able to do a lot lot greater good in the world. That, That was easy for me to kind of grab onto. And so we did that. And, and you could argue that we just didn't execute it well. That's not a bad thought process, mm. um, but it didn't go well for us, frankly, sort of just putting that top line revenue and that profitability, if you will, ahead of those other things that I've mentioned. Um, it, it, it's definitely not what I'm interested in. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this is something that's kind of at the core of how we're trying to build our business, but also what we work with other leaders on is just the idea of practicing healthy growth. And one of the things that I've noticed is a pattern, I wouldn't say it's always true, but it, it is kind of true, is that a lot of times some of the most goal-oriented businesses that I know are also the most stressed out and miserable businesses mm. I know. Uh, like, what's at the core of that from your perspective? Why do you think that is? Well, profitability is, of course, essential. Uh, top-line growth is good. 
I think it's just the ordering of the goals. And so mm-hmm. we still have the goal to be profitable. We still have the goal to grow the top line. It's just the sixth goal on the list now, whereas mm-hmm. at one point it was you know, arguably the first goal on the list, whether we said it or certainly the way we acted, it was the first goal on the list. And so it, they're not bad goals. I think it's a prioritization thing. And so we clearly re, we reordered the list from to healthy organization, number one, engaged associates, number two. And so we're not going to sacrifice those two things uh, to grow. And, and mm-hmm. frankly, we did that last year. Last year, we were growing too rapidly, even though we, we had essentially stopped advertising. So we were trying to slow down the growth ourselves. But frankly, because we've been so successful and our reputation is so solid, the fish are just jumping in the boat. And there was a point. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, it's cool. Um Middle of last year, too many fish were jumping in the boat and it was starting to stress out the team and starting to create some tension around the culture and and wowing the clients. And so we stopped taking on new clients. Mm. And so that, you know, it was just an example of, well, we have these different goals and sometimes they have tension amongst them, right? You can't have Mm -hmm. them all or at least you need to prioritize them. And so it was just a prioritization thing that I think we now have the maturity and the wisdom to see that uh, those other goals were good, profitability, top line growth but they're not the primary goals. Yeah, I I think that, at least for me, one of the things that can be really appealing about a metric is just the black and white nature of it. Like, I know if I hit it or I didn't. Whereas something like healthy team, I know the qualitative value of that, but I, I, I can't always wrap my arms around. So I'd love to know, like, how do you keep your thumb on the pulse of that goal of like healthy team is a value to us, it matters to us, and we're gonna ensure that we're doing this? Yeah, I like the both and uh, analogy. And so we measure all this stuff. We're very data, very data driven. We certainly have you know numerical goals uh, for, for team members and for productivity and for, for financials. And so, you know, it's, it's a combination of science and art. And so we measure the staff's engagement through surveys. We use the engagement survey from the Gallup company. And, mm. you know, you, you, so you see it in that. You see the, the level of health and engagement in that survey. You see it in turnover, frankly. I mean, you can't hide lack of engagement. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to raise its hand. People aren't going to perform well. Everybody sees it if they're not engaged. And eventually they kind of move on. And so if you have unwanted turnover, that probably means the organization's not living up to its own standards or, or stated kind of values and goals. And then sometimes you have wanted turnover, I call it, not to be insensitive, where you move somebody to a better place in life for them, a better organization. And, you know, there was a point in that middle tenure, uh, middle trimester, if you will, the, the second five years where we got up to about 65 associates mm-hmm. and recognized that it wasn't good. It wasn't where we wanted to be. Went through a process of uh, redefining the core values and actually living by them and hiring and firing based on them and went through a process of going down to in the mid thirties. So pretty much half of the staff left either by their choice or ours. And again, it it was a matter of, you can measure these things, but, but then it's also art and, and, you know, you can feel the pulse, you can feel the culture, you can tell if there's drama. Um, and, And so it's both. That's pretty fascinating because I think that that's what a lot of business leaders face. It it wasn't that you didn't have core values. It doesn't sound like it, it's that you redefined them. Is that correct? Uh, that and frankly, the the core values prior to this recent kind of redo of the company, if you will, in the last five years, which has got us to a much better place, best we've ever been. We had core values, but it was more lip service. It, it, they were on the wall 
And we talked about it as sort of an aspirational, nice thing, but they weren't non-negotiables. We weren't hiring and firing based on them. And so we made the decision that, A, we're going to commit to our values being almost everything in terms of staffing, hiring and firing based on core values. We're going to incentivize and pay people based on adherence to core values. It's going to be everything, how our staff behaves as the foundation of a service-based company. And so we we redid. And, and so when we made the decision that we're going to commit to this and hire and fire based off this, well, then that's also a good time to come up with a new list of core values of what we want <laughs> yeah. around here, right? Because uh, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, and frankly, as we looked at the new list of values, it was clear 25, 35% of the workforce were not core value fits. Um, mm. And something was going to need to happen. So. I've seen so many leaders that kind of reach that exact same juncture that they realize like, man, we are, we have values, but we're not a value-based organization. And I mean, they are scared out of their minds to do what they know is right. Right. Like, so, or like cause this is really hard. Cause you know, like, man, it, we're going to take a nosedive in yeah. terms of like team members leaving in terms of profitability could take a hit, right. We're going to lose some top performers. I mean, was it scary for you whenever you're standing at that edge saying like, I know this is correct, but that doesn't make it easy. Yeah, I mean, we call it productive paranoia. Certainly, it wasn't a fun exercise. It's not where we wanted to land, but in life, you don't always have all good options. And so, you know, the two options, and I'm blessed with some pragmatism, the two options were more of the same, which was unsustainable. And, and you know, frankly, I was going to either have to get out of the business. It it was either, I'm going to have, this is not sustainable for me. This is not good. I can't be involved in this for much longer where it was. So it, it had to happen, right? It's that here to there analogy of we're going to go there. And a big part of here to there in our business, at least, is recognizing that here is unsustainable. This has to change. And so, mm. you know, sure, a lot of stuff in business is scary. We make a lot of important decisions. But I think leaning into God and trusting God as as is the most important part of that, you know, kind of going away and not being a concern. But then also just the pragmatism of that. It had to happen. Yeah. Why was it unsustainable for you? Like, why do you say like, man, I couldn't stay here if we didn't do this? Yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. Um, I just have a, a fierce distaste for drama. For, for, um, <laughs> that is the truth, man. Yeah, your, your voice on this conversation hasn't gone, gone above a five yet, man. <laughs> I'm very um, measured. Yeah, you know, there's life is hard, right? And we don't need to make it harder. And pettiness <laughs> and it's just, I just don't tolerate it. I just can't do it personally. And so we call it a drama-free zone. We tell people in the interview process, hey, you can like drama TV shows, that's fine. But we don't do drama here. You know, we don't have <laughs> gossip. We're, we want everybody to succeed. And so it, it just, for me, I'm blessed to be the owner. I call, I call it, I'm the steward, the chief steward of the company that God's given me. But um, God wants me to have joy too. And it's just impossible for me to have joy when I'm in charge of an organization that's not healthy. It just can't happen. Yeah. So, I mean, drama free was obviously something that you valued before this shift of reintroducing new core values. How How was it because I think this happens to a lot of people. And it's one of the things that I'm productively paranoid about happening to our organization is you have the ability as a leader to value something, but build a company that ends up not looking like that thing. So how do you think it was that you got to an organization with 65 people that it sounds like had a lot of drama in it whenever you did value drama free before? 
Yeah, it's a good question. It's it's hard to answer in short form. I would say a couple things. The at some point, right, we turned over the staffing decisions and the staffing process, the recruitment to other people. That was their one thing. We brought on an HR director. That was her one thing is to staff up the company. And I certainly communicated the values and the drama free and those things to her. But either I didn't do it well enough or or it wasn't executed well enough because what we ended up with were a lot of people in the building who weren't value fits and didn't sort of embrace they weren't engaged they some of them didn't even buy into ultimately the mission of the organization and so, so the, the our biggest failure frankly over the years or, or opportunity uh, for growth was was staffing hiring uh, mm-hmm. for many years the first five frankly when I was in charge of it it wasn't good and I can speak into that if you'd like and then the second five when we had sort of quote unquote professionals who that's what they're on this planet to do, uh, it wasn't good. <laughs> and it got good five years ago when we self-assessed that, hey, this isn't working. Something has to change. The number one problem in our business is hiring and firing and, and being good at it and getting the right people in the building. And we decided to turn it over to God. We put God in charge of our staffing plan. And we said, here's what we think we need, God. We think we need these people of, of this many of this quantity, and you're going to send them to us. And, and if we're supposed to have them, you'll send them. And we stopped recruiting. We stopped posting <laughs> jobs. And we said, God, send us who you want us to have. And that's basically what we did five years ago, and it's worked phenomenally. That's so interesting. We get resumes slid under the door of amazing people, amazing fits that we would have never found on a job posting or Indeed or whatever. And so... It's really cool. That is really cool. It, well, I mean, it's it's pretty awesome that the way that I know you is because now not just one, but two of my friends now work for you. Yeah. And it's like they work for you. And whenever we did the team training with y'all too, there were so many people on your team that I met that they're like, oh, I work here because of this person on the team told me how great this place was. There was one woman on your team that she had brought like, I mean, so many of her friends and family members. They're like, oh yeah, I all came here from her. It's like, it's amazing yeah. how if you focus on creating a great place to work, people start wanting to work there. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a lot of referral staff, and, and that goes both ways, right? Let's say when we had 60 people, let's say half were fits and half weren't. Well, referrals are great if they're coming from fits who are going to refer people like themselves, but if they're not fits, we don't necessarily want more of those. And so just by definition, a referral from another staff isn't a great thing unless you have a bunch of great fits like we do now. So Definitely a lot of our staff come from referrals from internal staff, but then there's just so many amazing stories of God just literally sending them to us. It's really Mm -hmm. cool. So at that critical juncture moment where you're kind of recognizing we need to redefine core values and start living by them, you said it was going to be unsustainable for you. Was it ever a thought in your head like, well, maybe I, this is gonna be a lot of heartache. Maybe I don't do that. Maybe I just leave. Like, did that even cross your mind? I definitely thought about leaving. I would say it was partially because it was going to be unsustainable for me otherwise, but partially I thought, hey, what's best for this organization? Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I just need to get out of the way. And maybe some of these desires of mine are personal desires about like, you know, because I successfully ran a few organizations in my 20s prior to this, and it felt easy. Um, And I was reflecting on that before this conversation today. Why did it seem easier when I knew less and was less wiser and less experienced. And I ran a pretty a couple pretty complicated companies that were very successful. And I thought about it is because the measurement of success was profitability. And I've always been good, blessed with that skill to make a company profitable. 
But as I reflect back on those prior organizations, they weren't healthy. It's just that nobody cared. That was normal and it was kind of accepted and it, was, it wasn't the goal. And with the company that I'm in charge of, you know, realizing these are very important to me. I mean, I think that's really helpful. It's like, I mean, if your metric is strictly profitability success, then it's like there's actually a pretty easy. I mean, there are literally books on how to get there, right? What healthy success is a way more winding road. No, that's right. And so your question was, had I contemplated leaving? And absolutely. But I have such, you know, I'm the founder and I've told the staff and at all times we had at least 50% good, amazing people that I feel that I'm loyal to and I feel responsible for making a great place for them to work and all our clients. And so, you know, I I don't frame it up. I never thought of bailing or I've got to get out. I can't do this. I would drudge through whatever for this organization. The real thought I had was God send somebody to replace me. You know, maybe this Mm -hmm. isn't, you know, it's not my time to run this thing. Maybe I got it up off the ground. Maybe that was what I was supposed to do. And maybe taking it to the next level is maybe I'm not equipped for it. Maybe I'm the problem. And so send somebody. So <laughs> probably the staff doesn't know this, but probably for a good year, I, my prayer was God send somebody to replace me. I am ready <laughs> to have that happen. Yeah. Well, and, the, and then the fact that that didn't happen, was that a sign of you? It's like, no, I'm supposed to be here and we're supposed to take that on. This is my challenge to take on. 100%. Wow. And therefore, it was clear that we need to make some changes because if I'm going to run this thing, we've got to get back to sort of old school. Mm. The previous companies, I'd be interested to know, because you literally on your website, on Five Stones website, it says we are a faith-based tax reduction firm. And you are yeah. very clear about we are faith-based. Was that your approach in previous businesses? And what does faith-based mean to you now? Yeah, not the approach in prior companies. I ran other people's companies and I don't even know where they were on a faith scale. And it certainly wasn't discussed or part of the organization like most businesses. You know, for us, it's everything. I mean, I just, uh, we're overt that we're faith-based. And what that means, frankly, is that it's a safe space for people of faith. I'm a Christian, and a lot of people that work here are Christians. But we've had over the years, I think, every faith that there is. You know, Islam, uh, Judaism, Catholicism, Christianity. I mean, you name it. uh, Hindu, Buddha. We want it to be a safe space for people who believe in a higher power and don't want to be... you know, discriminated against or belittled because they have a faith. And so that's Mm -hmm. what faith-based means. And, you know, what that looks like, frankly, in the interview process is we don't ask people where they are in terms of faith, but we do let them know that this is, um, there are a lot of people in the the building who are, who believe in a religion, if you will, or people of faith. And if you're anti-faith or anti-religion, it's not going to (laughs) work. You're not going to enjoy this very (laughs) much. It's not going to (laughs) work. Uh, how does your faith affect the way you view your role as a leader? Mm. I think accountability, right? We all need accountability. I need accountability. I, I, I try to lead by example. I'm trying to be a good man, a good husband, a good father, a good leader, you know, a good child of God. And so by overtly putting that out there that we're a faith-based company and, you know, and then all the staff know that I'm a Christian and so that's a high responsibility uh, that, you know, there's a lot of people that want to throw rocks right at people of faith um, for being hypocrites or whatever. And so I enjoy the accountability that's kind of baked into that, um, that, that I need to kind of be above reproach and, and walk the high road and, you know, lead by example, be authentic. So mm. 
Okay, so if we go back to kind of that critical juncture war room moment where you're like, okay, we're going to redefine core values. Who is we in that scenario? Like, who do you bring into that room? Yeah, I mean, it was a large group of people at the time. We had probably a 12-person senior leadership team. And so it was interesting that in, in the moment, I don't think I fully grasped the extent to which some of the senior leaders were part of the problem. Mm. And so, you know, the senior leaders at the time were at the table and got to speak into it. But I think it was largely, you know, there's different levels of influence. And so it was largely, I think, the values that I and a couple other people came up with in terms of that are still here. But frankly, some of the senior leaders at the time weren't fits either. Mm. And did that start to show itself in the process of defining core values? Absolutely. Yeah, it, really? it, did. it did. And then how did you land on the five that became core for y'all? Did y'all walk through a, did you walk through Pat Lencioni's process or was it we a process did. that you kind of? Yeah, okay. I don't have a lot nice. of original information. I'm, I'm a big reader and uh, <laughs> like, like stealing other people's best ideas. But yeah, we went, the advantage, Lencioni was a big part of it. And I think what the exercise was is, who are a couple of your top people that in terms of how you want them to behave or what value traits they have? And then there's your core values. And so, Mm. you know, we, we had two associates that we looked at and we said, those are model associates. This is how we want people to behave. One's still here and one's not. And so they were essentially the core value models. (laughs) We want more people like them. You know, if we can clone a person, who is it? And then what is it about them that we like? And then that's how we came up with it. That's awesome. Can we walk through them one at a time? And can you just talk through kind of what they mean to you and then what they look like in action within y'all's business? Yeah. And, and they're big words and, and they can mean different things in different capacities. But, you know, the first one, which I think you're a fan of is growth. Um, yeah. You know, we're not <laughs> just finished. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not finished products. Um, you know, it's biblical. We're in the sanctification process, but, you know, growth. So we want to grow professionally, personally, spiritually, physically, you know, whatever. We, we want to keep moving closer to our potential. Mm. And, and that has a lot packed into it, as you know. Uh, and just to touch on one or two, it's, it's some humility that I don't know a lot, right? There's a lot that I still need to learn. And I just, I still find it so interesting how difficult it is for a lot of people to sort of come to terms with that they're incompetent at certain things. Mm. I mean, there's thousands of things we're all incompetent at, but, and, and I, it just seems intuitive to me, but there are a lot of folks, including a lot of staff that we've had over the years who, if you just try to talk to them about, Hey, this could look a lot different, how hard that seems to be. But anyway, so growth, uh, selflessness. Well, before, before yeah. you go on to selflessness, um, how do you look for that value in someone in the interview process? Like mm. how do you define if growth is there for them? It's a good question. And, and what a caveat is one of the keys to our better hiring and firing practices is I'm not heavily involved in it anymore. <laughs> so I was not good at it. I was the, I was the chief, the chief bad hirer. Um, There's the awareness of incompetence that you're talking that's, about. That's absolutely. Really good. <laughs> absolutely. And because I came at it from the approach of, hey, all humans have a ton of value and all humans have God given gifts. And so my thought process in an interview, which was not a good one, was I'm going to find your gift and then I'm going to hire you. And everybody's got them. So I'm hiring everybody. 
right? Um, but anyway, man, you'd be a great podcast interviewer because what I found <laughs> is I'm I'm great at interviewing people for a podcast. I'm horrible interviewing people for a job because it's like the whole thing for this is like, oh, find what's interesting and great and bring it out of them. Right. Interviewing for a job is a way different skill set. <laughs> yeah. I don't specifically know how we find, I mean, when I, my role in the interview process, so we kind of break out the interview process in terms of some folks are looking for competence, some folks are looking for character and, and within both of those are some of the core values, right? As we'll get to. Mm. And then my role is to come in and just check for chemistry mostly. And so I really don't have a great answer in terms of how we figure out if somebody's going to fit in from a growth perspective. Um, That's really good, though. So you're you've got specific interview steps yeah. dedicated to competence, specific steps dedicated. You said character and then chemistry, correct? Yeah, yeah, chemistry, character, competence, and and all of those tuck under one of our five core values is tucked under one of those three somewhere. And so, and, and so we've bifurcated the roles. So, my wife, um, our controller, she's a CPA founding partner. She's looking at the character. She's focused on character because she just has this discernment. She can just really see people for really kind of deep down who they are. And so she's mm. focused on that. Uh, our chief of staff, Mary Bain, same thing, really looking at the, the the character aspects of it. Then there's a hiring manager in the process who's really delving into the competence. Are you going to be able to do the job? Are you going to be able to be effective? And so, and then lastly, I come in and, and really, and we send them to a team lunch as well to check for chemistry. You could be an amazing person, going to crush your job, but if it's going to be oil and water with some of your your peers, you know, maybe it's not the best idea. Mm. Man, I, my takeaway from that, that I like, I'm going to talk to Zach, our COO after this, and we're doing some of this right now, but giving an interview, a specific assignment on what to look for, I think would probably make an interview way more effective instead of just like, oh, just see what you think of this person. It's like, no, your job is to identify whether or not they have X quality trait or things like that. That's, that's valuable. That's really good. And, and I would say I'd be remiss by not saying that also I tell them you're looking for, you're looking for why we should not hire this person. Right. So mm. what I was looking for why we should hire the person and you can always find it. Right. Always. So I tell them, no, it, they started a no you need. And I want you to find the reason why it's a no. <laughs> so very, mm. you know, very hard to get in the building. <laughs> They're uh, guilty until proven innocent. That's right. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> you know, and, and we and we give them a score on one to ten and we don't allow a seven because as we analyzed, why is the hiring not working? What is happening? And we look back over the hires that didn't work out. They were almost all sevens. When we scored them, they were giving sevens because that's, and we decided that's no man's land. That's like the nice, that's where you don't want to, you don't want to be negative, but they didn't impress you. So you give them a seven. So we made a switch that everybody scores the interviewee on one to 10 overall, should we hire them or not? And we don't allow sevens. And that was a massive change because then they were forced to give them a six when pressed if they're not going to or they weren't going to round up and give them an eight when it wasn't warranted, but then they felt safe and would, get, would give them a six. And so that was a key for us as we go into it with the idea that we're not going to hire you and we're going to find out we're going to justify that position through the interview process, that decision. And then you can't give a seven. Um, only eights or above move on. Very good, man. That's so helpful. Okay, so growth was the first core value. You were said you were saying selflessness is the second. Yeah, selflessness, right? The the opposite of how we're born. You know, mine, me, <laughs> I, uh, you know, if you have kids, you see it right away, day one. They're they're born selfish. They're little sinners, right? Um, and so we want other centered people. Easy to put others first, right? That's a big part of that drama free zone. 
You know, I'm not mm-hmm. going to get ahead at the expense of somebody else. I, I want everybody else to succeed. I'll, I'll help you before I help myself. And so selflessness, you know, just being able to put others first, not easy to do. You know, all of our core values are very challenging and, and all of us on some level, you know, f- struggle with them, right? Th- these are mm-hmm. very hard to kind of walk out all day, every day. But selflessness is a big part of it. Professionalism. You can't be a professional services firm and not, you know, have professionalism probably as a core value. And 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 we unpack that. That's a big word. We unpack it as behavior, communication, and attitude. So we want mm-hmm. you to show up with a positive attitude. Um, that should be your kind of baseline. Um, we want you to behave in a professional way. That goes into the drama-free. And then you need to be able to communicate professionally. Your, your writing skills and your verbal communication skills, you know, LOL, um, um, you know, that's not going to work when when people are trusting you to handle very significant financial issues. Well, it was pretty amazing. You know, I walked around and basically just met every individual on your team before we started the team training. And there were about 30 people there that day. And just going around, the number of times I told people, man, you have a great handshake and you make great eye contact. And, and it's like in a group of 30 people, that is abnormal that – that everyone does that. And so what are you doing to keep the values front and center? I mean, obviously that's one that's like, okay, well, people are professional or they're not, but there's things like selflessness that it's not our natural wiring. So we have to keep it front and center. How do you do that? It's that Lencioni model of once you establish the clarity, once you define it, you keep talking about it over and over and over. And so we're broken records on all this stuff. We, we talk about it. We incentivize it. We, re, we award it. You know, we had an all team yesterday. Once a month, we have an all team meeting and the staff gets to vote on every every month. Somebody wins the core value award for each of the five and it's peer voted. And so mm. we highlight it. We shine a light on it. We talk about it. it. It's 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 in our verbiage. It's in our nomenclature. You know, it's it's in the review. The, when you get a review twice a year, those are the five things you get scored on. Um, and so we keep it front and center in every way. Do they score themselves or you score them? And, and how do you score? Is it like one to five or how do you do it? Yeah, both. They do a self-assessment and then we do a supervisor assessment. And so you want to see if there's a gap, right? It's, it, it's, that's where you tend to have a problem in performance management. If, if somebody thinks they're in a significantly different place performance-wise than the supervisor does. But so they self-assess, we assess, and it is just one to five. And each each of those numbers has sort of a term attached to it, you know, meeting expectations, uh, needs improvement, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and you said you do that twice a year. Twice a year. Okay. That's helpful. So, okay. So growth, selflessness, professionalism, what's the fourth one? Commitment. Another big word to kind of unpack. It means different things to different people. I, I think partially it's, it's I, I plan to be here a while, right? Who knows what life's going to throw at you. You might get called to the mission field next year. Your spouse might get transferred to Denver, but you're you're all in. Otherwise, you know, you, this is where you see yourself for many years. Um, and so it's a it's a it's in that regard. There's a commitment. You know, it, it might be working an hour or two extra if needed. You know, we've got some deadlines that we work around. And so sometimes our folks aren't working anywhere near as much as our competitors and sort of, you know, the accounting industry in general. But mm-hmm. there are times when, hey, we need to put in a few extra hours and and that shouldn't, you know, go, go the extra mile, right? That shouldn't be a big ask. So, so commitment to the organization, at least intending to be here a while, some longevity, uh, longevity outlook, commitment to, to go the extra mile on any given day. If, if a client or, a, or your boss or another an associate needs some help, you know, willingness to, to do whatever is necessary. Um, 
you know, we don't, we're not looking for people to say that's not my job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever, <laughs> whatever needs to be done to help us be successful and, and, and make a positive impact on folks. So try to, that, that's how I try to unpack commitment. Yeah. One of the things that, um, I've always liked about Pat Lencioni's model of teaching core values in this light. He said, you know, it's a core value if you have somewhat of a willingness to accept that people may take this too far. And it's like people may go like over index on this yeah. core value to a degree. And one of the things that I can't even remember if it got brought up in the training or not, or if it was something you and I talked about is like, man, commitment as a core value is obviously a very virtuous thing. And at the same time, if you're not careful, people become so high achieving committed mm -hmm. that the other things you deeply care about for them being their family and their faith and their balance and their health can get neglected. How do you manage that as a leader, making sure, hey, you've got all these priorities you're committed to? Yeah. You know, as you laid that out, it it made me realize that commitment is probably the first to go if we redid the core values, because it's just mm. hard. It, it, it is at odds with what you just said. We're big fans of work-life balance. We're, we're big fans of, hey, you know, yeah, what we do here is significant, but there's far more important things in your life, your family, you know, your faith. And so we don't want staff working longer or, or thinking about their job, you know, late at night. And so what we don't want commitment to come off as, is, which maybe is the default, you know, for maybe a new hire or something is, oh, that means you need to work a ton of hours. Um, mm. And so and even as I was trying to articulate commitment just now, I feel like I'm grasping a little bit. It's it's probably mm. the unclearest that it would get cut if we were going to replace a core value. Mm. Well, I mean, and that highlights an important point too, is that I think some people don't establish core values because they never feel like they're done. And even you just saying like, oh, maybe we could take another look at that gives freedom to people to say like, it's never going to be perfect. I mean, yeah. is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sure we had a, a better, I, I think when we came up with it, I could have articulated it better. But over the years, it's just, it's what we discussed the least you know, it's what we highlight the least. Hmm. But, you know, there are people who who go far above and beyond. And so there are absolutely many opportunities to recognize people and affirm people for going above and beyond. And so maybe maybe obviously there's something there. We came up with it as a core value. And and at the same time, while we value work life balance, I'm not here to tell people that they shouldn't, you know, what their goals should be. And so we do have some staff who are, whether it's they're younger or they don't have families yet, and they want to put in more time. They want to mm -hmm. advance. They want to grow. They want to accelerate, you know, getting into management and, and improving their lives financially. Well, I'm not going to get in their way and tell them they can't work 50, 60 hours a week. I mean, I worked 80 hours a week running a, a, a upscale supermarket in my 20s, and I loved it. Nobody told me to. And mm -hmm. so, <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, and it's kind of like a mentality and also a wisdom and discernment thing. It's like, well, if you're so committed that your family is being neglected, probably not great. But if if you can do all this, like go for it, knock yourself out. That's good. What's the fifth core value? Effectiveness. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm. Uh, it's That's one of those that you're like, man, that should be a core value everywhere, but it's <laughs> definitely not. Like it's definitely not everywhere. It's got to be right. I mean, quality. It's got to be right. It's everything we do, right? People trust us with very serious financial issues. It's got to get done right. It's a complete non-negotiable. Yeah, we want to be, if not the best, certainly in the top couple percentile of our of our competitors and our peers in terms of our effectiveness. And so, you know, you can be, and, and that was frankly, 
what was missing early on when I was hiring everybody the first five years. I was hiring great people. They just weren't effective. Mm. And so, you know, and that they were making mistakes or what made them ineffective? Yeah, it could be productivity. It could be errors, just not good at their job. You know, fine, great people, but but not good at their job. You know, I'm not I'm a great person, but you're not going to put me on a sport, an NFL team. It's not going to work. Right. I'm not going to be effective. (laughs) Well, it's interesting to me that so much of the work, at least my perspective on it, so much of the work that y'all's associates do is very detail oriented. And so, I mean, kind of effectiveness in the details really matters to y'all. And I heard y'all kind of discuss this and talk about this. And so mistakes can be a big deal and y'all are constantly trying to improve on mistakes. How do you make a culture where you're constantly striving for effectiveness, especially in the details, without becoming a micromanaged organization? Yeah, one thing I would say is we emphasize effectiveness over efficiency. So we want both, Mm -hmm. but when push comes to shove, effectiveness wins. And so take as much time as you need to get it right. And so efficiency would come after effectiveness. And I mean, people get it. Over the years, there have been some mistakes. And so we illustrate those to the folks to make sure they understand the brevity of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I think effectiveness is the number one reason why we terminate folks, frankly, right? It, mm. We usually don't miss on quality of character. I, I think you can usually tell like in an interview process if somebody's a good person or not, if they have a, mm. you know, if they're a quality person. It's very hard to tell if they're going to be good at their job. That, at least that's my experience. And so effectiveness, it's the easiest core value to identify if you're not meeting it, at least in our sphere, you know, for the people we hire. Because the other, the others are easier to check the box for the folks we hire. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things that I believe kind of sets an organization apart as being value-based is can you see this value show up in the way people are spending their time and the way the organization is spending its money? And I feel like it's a representation of the selflessness core value that y'all hold that generosity is kind of baked into your business model, like it's woven in what you do. So can you speak a little bit to the, the, the genesis of generosity being part of how your organization is structured? And then we'll kind of go into it from there because it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, so I have to go all the way back to my childhood where God gifted me with, the, with generosity. You know, as a little kid, I had a paper route, I think sixth grade. We didn't have money. But I had a paper out, and so I had a little money personally, and my family didn't. But And, and I remember hearing about a family in church, and the kids weren't going to get any Christmas presents. And immediately I said, hey, let, I want to take my money, and I want to go buy these kids some presents. Um, oh. And so I don't get to take credit for that. That's just how God made me. Mm. And, and so, you know, was always tithing 10%. That was fine. I remember going to a C12 meeting. I was part of this Christian business owner group early on in our company's history when I was giving 10%. And I heard the story, I'm pretty sure it was J.C. Penney, who over his lifetime flipped it to where he gave 90% and kept 10%. And I thought that's immediately I knew that's what I wanted to do in my life at some point, that I wanted to get to that J.C. Penney model if I have the right person of giving away 90. And so that just set this course of, okay, we're going to go from 10 to 90. How are we going to get there? And so we went from, I think, 10 to 20 to 30 to 33 in four straight years. Jeez. And then when we when we got to 33% of profits to charity, <laughs> the thought occurred to me, and I hope it's from God, where, hey, personally, I can get there. But as a business, we're going to start constraining the ability of the business to grow and make the pie bigger. 
And so is it going to be better to have the pie get bigger and then that third naturally grows with a bigger pie? Or do we essentially give away a much larger percentage of the company's profits and then the pie doesn't get bigger? But we're giving away more money. But in the end, I think through keeping it at a third and then grow and then using that money to reinvest and grow the organization and make the pie bigger, more whole gross dollars goes to charity. And so and then the marketing department, frankly, was giving me some static because every year we had to change all of <laughs> changing the, the percentage every time, the percent every year. And so anyways, we landed on a third after about a four year process after hearing that story. And so that's where we're at. It feels like a good number. It's a nice little analogy of a third goes to goes to sort of staff. A third goes to overhead. And then in our model, at least, and then a third is broken up into three other thirds. A third goes to the government, a third goes to charity, and then a third goes to the stakeholders, the shareholders. So, Wow. And how do you decide who to give to? Yeah, that's a really fun part of my job. That that might be one of my favorite things to do. And so- That's pretty awesome. (laughs) A, we want a lot of participation. So that third that we give to charity doesn't happen unless our staff does what they do, right? So- we highlight it constantly that they are are how this is happening. So they get to take ownership in it. You know, I'm writing the checks, but they did the work to make it happen. We want our clients to take ownership in it. We let them know, not not to try to pat ourselves on the back, but, you know, th- to let them feel good and be blessed by that, that, hey, you're, you're making a difference as well by using us in this regard. And so we we, we make everybody known and let them, let, let them celebrate and, and partake in it. Specifically, we let them direct some of it too. So, so we let our our clients uh, vote on where a hundred thousand of it goes. Wow! And then we let our staff direct. They each get to direct a thousand, whatever charity they want. They get to direct a thousand of it to them. So everybody's certainly participating, but then directly driving some of it. And the rest is just me. I decide kind of what God's put on my heart and. The, the super majority of it goes to human trafficking. Mm. That's just something that I became aware of about 10 years ago, and it just wrecked me that there's this thing, uh, that there's this reality of human trafficking and how awful it is and, and to what extent it, it exists. And so, you know, the way God's it put it on my heart, it's hard for me to, that, that's just my cause, human trafficking. And so that's where the majority of it goes. Mm. With giving of all types, but especially with giving of such large amounts of money some years, which is just awesome. Praise God for that. There's a, there's an element of stewardship I know that's involved in that, that you, you want to make sure you know that the organization that you're giving to is something that's going to use it in the proper way. So how do you ensure that you're writing a check to an organization that's going to steward it well. What does that process look like for you? Yeah, there's definitely a discernment process. In the in the past, part of this last year, you know, frankly, over the over the 14 some odd years of the company, we didn't make a lot of money for different reasons. And so those those stewardship decisions, those discernment decisions weren't massive. It was, you know, five thousand to this organization, ten thousand to that organization. We really like spreading it around. So if we're going to give a hundred thousand dollars away, that's going to probably, nobody's getting more than 10000 And so that doesn't feel like a massive decision to figure out. There's a lot of great organizations out there that I'm perfectly comfortable giving $10,000 to. Recently, in the last couple of years, those numbers have gotten a lot bigger. And so- Congratulations. Week, That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is a much larger challenge now. And what you just asked about is, is more of a recent you know, privilege to figure out of, of making sure that this money is going to, to good uses. Um and so I think, again, the primary thing that I've tried to do is be diversified and not give too much in one place to sort of to, to sort of help with that. 
But then even at the levels we're at, let's call it 500,000 to a million per year, we're still spreading that out across kind of 25,000 a year max per organization. And so I feel like just from what I know, being able to do some internet research, we're we're comfortable with, with those types of gifts from what's essentially publicly available. Yeah. When anyone talks about generosity that's practicing it, you know, kind of one of the fundamental principles is that you th- you think you're blessing the person you're giving to. And in reality, sometimes the person and the organization in this case that's most blessed is your own. How does this being a part of the business bless the business? And what it, what is the gift that it provides for your team? Yeah. You know, our mission, our purpose is to make a positive impact in the lives of others. And so that we haven't really touched on that today, but that's what it's all about that, you know, everything is below that. And so it's really cool when, and and we're all about celebrating and and affirming. And so we try to celebrate regularly the positive impact that comes out of the organization. Um, In our all team yesterday, we talked about, we've saved our clients over $80 million in taxes. Wow. Um, You know, and, and, you know, we're able to give uh, over a million dollars to charity last year. And so we highlight it. And I think a big part of associates being engaged, our tenure is the highest it's ever been. We're over six years now with our average associates tenure. I think a huge part of why many of our staff work at Five Stone is because of that, is because of that positive impact and that significance that comes with working here. And a big part of that significance is that money and the life changing. I mean, we're literally saving lives. You know, we're literally saving Mm -hmm. lives with that money and we're not making, you know, nothing wrong with making basketballs, but, you know, we're not making basketballs. There's a massive amount of positive impact and significance that comes out of the building. And so that helps with engagement. That helps with their tenure. uh, That that helps with wanting to come to work in the morning, I believe, you know, and and, um, you know, there's times when everybody's job is difficult and hard. And, you know, we've got 40,000 clients and some of them aren't the nicest people on the planet. And so when you get to have those interactions, you know, it's a nice sort of thing that's always there of, hey, this is, but why we do this is a big deal. And I can kind of get through these small inconveniences each day. Mm. Well, man, just spending time with you and with your team, I left that and hearing about the principles behind 33% of profitability. I left that and literally we had a meeting with our team after our team training with you. And I was like, we had to figure out our percentage. And so we are in the process of that right now of, and we're going to launch it this quarter of figuring out what is our percentage that we're going to commit to and how are we going to structure the business around it? And Truly, like it's because one of our core values is strength is for service. But then also it's because like I just admire the culture y'all have in your team where it's truly baked into the business model that this is at, this is not about us. And I just admire that so much. And that, I mean, we had a great discussion that day of the team training where it's like, man, when this business wins, like it's not, it's not cliche that we say everyone wins. Like yeah. when this business wins, it's literally everyone wins. So I just want to commend you for that and just let you know that I admire y'all for practicing that and for setting the pace with that because it's amazing, JP. And you can't outgive God. I mean, um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a couple Bible verses that talk about, you know, try me. I, I think that's the one place yeah. in the Bible where God essentially says, test me, you know, right? And so, you know, it's 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 worked for us. It's good. 
Very cool. Well, man, I, I'm grateful for your example. I'm grateful uh, that we get to work with you and your team. And uh, thank you for taking the time to kind of share some of your experience so authentically with us today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I love it. I love it. We're a huge fan. If I can speak into it for a second, the training you did for our team was amazing. Huge benefits have come from it. And I would recommend it to anybody that uh, has the opportunity to do it. Thank you so much, JP. Appreciate you. Gosh, without a shadow of a doubt, JP is impact-driven through and through, and so is his organization. We're so grateful for uh, his time, his investment, and for his example. Y'all, real quick, moving forward, there's a couple things. Number one, I hope that you're taking it as a takeaway that the principles that he talked about with regard to the generosity of you as a leader and the generosity of your business, that is not something that is simply reserved to him. That is something that we all have the opportunity, and I would even argue the responsibility to take part in. And what's so cool is we get to have this posture as leaders that we are blessed to be a blessing to others. And that is inherent in the core value that we say all the time uh, at the end of this podcast. We always say our strength is not for us. Our strength is for service. And inherent in that is like, you have a responsibility to be strong. Get your act together. Make your business outrageously strong. Hit revenue goals. Grow your business. Add to your team members. Become more efficient. Become more effective. But then why are you becoming strong? Well, you're becoming strong so that you can spend that strength so that you can more effectively serve others. And I just think his model is such an incredible example of that. So I want you to take that seriously. I want you to think about what generosity looks like within your business. The other thing I wanted to tell you is that if you found value in this content, we send some like it every week via email to a growing community of people. Um, It's called Worth It Wednesday. And that's because I believe that most email isn't worth it. But we try to send out one once a week that is worth your time and worth your energy. So every Wednesday, we send a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, a recommendation worth taking. Uh, It's so cool to see how this community is growing, but I think even more cool is the stories we're hearing back on LinkedIn and via email and on social media about how people are taking these principles and putting them into action and actually doing something with them to effectively serve others. So if you want to be a part of the Worth It Wednesday community, you can sign up for that in the link that's in the show notes or at pathforgrowth.com. Y'all, we're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.